Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, IronRadio.org listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm a nutrition and exercise physiology professor, and I'm an amateur bodybuilder. Rob Fortress Fortney. I'm a journalist, former editor at Muscle International, former competitive bodybuilder and powerlifter. Ooh, and this is Phil Stevens. I'm a powerlifter and Island Games athlete, and I run Strength Guild and Lift for Hope. Yeah. Sweet. Rob, let's go with your news first. <laughs> Strength and Muscle Sport News. It's... Crazy. It's, it's it's horrifying. Yes, and horrifying. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Apparently, a Russian weightlifter, uh, Igor Golushkin, he died um, in a competition. He was pressing a 185 count kilogram barbell. What is that? Let me. I will. It's just actually, a hair over 405. Yeah, I'm gonna. I think it's 407. Do the calculations for you. 407. Yeah. Okay. 400, 470 pounds. He was bench pressing. Um, I came in some city in Russia. Anyway, he uh, lost control of the, the bar. It fell onto his chest. And apparently, the crushing weight of the barbell severely hemorrhaged his heart, destroyed his diaphragm, broke his ribs, and ripped torn his abdominal cavity. He was 34. Um, anyway, they, they say apparently he was using any quote-unquote illegal hold. Um, they call it open enough, which I, I suppose people in North America probably know more of this false grip or thumbless grip. But um, we've all looked at the video, and, and Phil, you're saying the same thing that I did. It doesn't look like he's using a false grip, does it? Mm, no. Yeah. Re- regardless, um, Phil has also said that he's seen something, as, I have, as have I. I've seen several people drop weights about like that onto their chest. Mm-hmm. I actually saw in person somebody drop about a 400-pound yeah. uh, about 15 years ago. I guess it's just like the guy who falls down the full flight of stairs and he's fine, and another guy falls down, you know, two steps and he dies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I mean, think about Christopher Reeve falling off the horse, you know, exactly. and just comes a quadriplegic, and then some people that happens and they don't, you know, yeah. snap the right vertebra or whatever. I don't know. Yeah. So anyway, he uh, apparently died, but it, you can actually see the video if if anybody's wants to. It's it's actually not nearly as gory as I thought it was going to be. It's like I pretty say, graphic. I... The slow-mo, by the way, this is liveleak.com. Liveleak.com, uh, yeah. Wow. I, I, think it's, I think it's pretty horrific. Well, when I saw it originally, somebody had started a thread, and they were saying something about, you know, oh, yeah, you see the, the dead guy sitting there at the end of the bench, you know, <laughs> drinking the bottled water. And I, and I actually said before I knew... You know, apparently how he died. I, I was, I actually made a post saying, you know, it's possible he was sitting there hemorrhaging while he was drinking the water, and you know, several minutes later he just keeled over. And I, oh, I, very I, much. Yeah. I suppose yeah. that's exactly now. Now that I know the details of what apparently his injuries were, I suppose that's exactly what happened. You know, as as does often happen, right, Lonnie? You probably know more about that than I do. Uh, like well, I can only imagine. I mean, if he tore his diaphragm, it's amazing he could even take a breath. You know, because, of course, that's the muscle that depresses and creates a vacuum so you can even take a breath. Uh, but maybe that wasn't completely ruptured. I don't know. But uh, looking at the video, the massive concavity 
of his chest and upper abdomen when that bar sinks into his torso. Um, it's not good. I can definitely see that's there's some breakage and tearing going on. I there. just I just put it on the Facebook page. So. Oh, okay. okay. Okay, that's good. Yeah. So yeah, horrific news. And you know what? It reminds me that when we're in the gym. Uh, and you're doing anything from a squat or a bench or whatever, don't take for granted that you've got hundreds of pounds over your head because if it falls on you, you're screwed. You know, I mean, yeah. I mean, you're not necessarily killed. Like Rob said, he's seen it, you know, fall on other people, but, uh, yeah, that's what can happen. Wow. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's a damn shame. I, I've never heard of anybody dying bench pressing before. That's the first one I've heard of. I'm not saying, I mean, obviously you hear the urban myths of people dropping it on their, Necks and stuff in the basement when they do it, and I, and I suppose that probably has happened. Well, it's so sad because he gets up, the lady gets him some water, you know, and he's trying to shake it off. And I mean, you, you don't realize the massive internal trauma. He's not shaking that off. Yeah. You know? No, that's mm. that. At first, like I said, when I first saw that, I, I doubted that. I was like, nah, he didn't die. But then I found more information. Apparently, yes, he did die. So that's uh, that's horrific. So uh, condolences to his friends and family and the whole anybody who had to be at that meet witness that that's in competition yeah extremely traumatizing to see somebody in a sporting event trying to do their best and instead they uh lose their life that's brutal yeah okay yeah uh phil you had some um almost legal kind of controversial kind of news right yeah it's kind of a buzz going right now i just was made aware of it yesterday by one of my clients um he, he used to train at a crossfit and now i guess the big uh, the big uh, news around the CrossFit uh, arena, aside from uh, some monetary stuff going on with people trying to take it over, um, is that now one of their own, uh, let me look up the name here, Daniel Boomsauce Tominski, um, okay. he has teamed with MHP, and they put out a supplement line called XFIT. Um, so they got a whole, whole supplement line, and then they're also putting out workout videos and stuff like that, um, where they're pretty much doing uh, circuit training, much like CrossFit, um, where they put in chins and sit-ups and this and that and double-unders. And uh, the HQ, I guess, is all in an uproar over it. And, and this guy, he's a, he's a box owner. He owns a CrossFit facility, and he was a CrossFit competitor in the games. And he's uh, the other people on his, the, the XFIT team is what it says, are also... Uh, instructors or owners. Even the name um, is extremely pushing the envelope. X it is. Cross. Exactly. <laughs> you know? And uh, their, their, uh, their whole argument, from what I hear, is that, you know, they didn't, CrossFit didn't create circuit training. You know, they have no, they don't own these things. You know, circuit training's been around for, for quite a while, right. so anybody can use it type of thing, and they get a pretty good argument. But, I think uh, they do, because we've talked yeah. about before how they've rebranded general physical preparedness you know oh, yeah. rebranded circuit training essentially and you watch them i mean if you read any of the stuff with with it's pretty neat how they've taken things like they they make new terms for long existing terms in this in the, right. in the industry like strength endurance you know strength endurance work is where you're you know obviously working strength moves for endurance instead of aer- exactly. aerobic endurance and they take that and they call it it's metabolic conditioning they make up their own little words for it and then they brand that Um, that, you know what that reminds me of that reminds me of the old weeder principles you know in the magazines where weeder would restate classic concepts of physical fitness and Mm -hmm. and own them and you know (laughs) 
And that's exactly what they've done with much of the stuff. It's like, that's nothing new. But it's just the way that, that Glassman put it out there. It's like, oh, you know, by calling it something new and then branding it and then using uh, good marketing, you know, he's put it out to people who didn't know what it was. And now they think, you know, I have people come in my place. Are we going to do Metcons? They know we don't Metcon here. We do strength endurance. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we do what's been done that's since right. the 1800s. <laughs> Either a legitimate term or, so. a, or a traditional time-honored term, not some, yeah. right, made-up exactly. thing. Exactly. So. Um, yeah, so pretty interesting. It, it's the, you know, that's kind of all the buzz uh, around that community right now. It'll be interesting how that plays out. It's and it's interesting that it's, you know, they didn't go out and start their own little line. They teamed with one of the, you know, MHP is not small. Fairly big. Yeah, you know, supplement a really company. big heavy hitter that's, that they're backed by. So it could be, uh, could be interesting. Hmm. You yeah. know what this also reminds me of is the Samsung versus iPhone. Yeah, that's what I was thinking of. You know, argument yeah. that. They're saying no, iPhone. You know, uh, these phones are uh, the shape and whatnot is a, a general thing, and you can't own it. And you know, of course, Apple saying no, we own that. Your phone looks too close to ours. It's it's very similar, I think, and it, it sets a precedent. I think when a judge says, okay, that's too close, and here's why, yeah. you know, or something like that. But. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's being a music fan. I mean, I can tell you that goes on and on. There's always a there's always a court case going on somewhere where somebody's saying they, you know, somebody ripped off a chord progression or a melody line or a. Where this differs, though, is you know, like we we're talking about, this stuff already existed pre-CrossFit. You know, there were yeah, people right. doing this sort of thing, whereas you know, there wasn't an iPhone before there was an iPhone. That well, I actually so. I thought about that when I was saying that. I mean, you can walk into any dollar store and find rip-off toys. Yeah. You know that are almost yeah. exactly. They're ninety-five percent similar to the brand name toy, and they're trying to fool the you know the ignorant mom or dad who doesn't know better. Yeah. They grab the the BS toy, you know, and the kids probably disappointed. Like you know, Special Man, I was um, in the store recently, and there was a, a an action figure that looks exactly like Superman, mm-hmm. but the, but the, uh, the on the top of the box said Special Man. Oh wow! <laughs> <laughs> oh, but, but but you know, Phil's got a good point though because. The creator, you know, DC Comics created Superman, the look, the red and blue and all of that. I mean, that's clearly intellectual property, whereas what CrossFit has done, if they're not very careful going after these guys, they're going to make themselves look like asses, I think, because they've just rebranded long-standing concepts. So, you know, I don't know. I can only think that they're trying to argue that their combination of all these new names and you know, a little paleo sprinkled in with the nutrition, a little bit of conditioning, a little this, a little yeah. that, and you have a new thing. Yeah. You know, maybe that's the intellectual property that they're going to try to defend. I don't know. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, I've got a bit of news. we got um, actually from one of our listeners. Uh, we'll just call him Wayne from Texas. Uh, we're trying to improve the anonymity here. We don't want to offend anybody, but... Um, <laughs> Thank you, Wayne, for giving me, uh, sending this from the New York Times. This is, um, it's really an opinion. It's by Gary Taubes, um, and it's about the calorie debate. So a lot of listeners might be familiar with the concept of a calorie is a calorie, uh, versus the concept of nutrient partitioning, right? Which is if you eat a thousand extra calories from protein, is it going to do the same thing to your love handles as a thousand extra calories from carbs? And I think most strength athletes and bodybuilders are going to know that, no, you know, uh, all calories are probably not created equal. Um, so that's what this goes on about. It goes on about the calorie is a calorie debate. Uh, it's really been part of the major belief system since the 1960s. And a lot of uh, physicians and even stick-in-the-mud scientists still, you know, vehemently cling to this. 
Um, it says, but not everybody buys this argument. Um, and the dispute erupted in full force last week in the Journal of the American Medical Association uh, by Ludwig and colleagues. Um, here's the, the, what they did. Uh, they actually wanted to look at the, the changes in metabolic rate on different kinds of diets. So they took people and they, they dieted them down, semi-starved them, whatever you want to call it, down to 10 to 15% below their usual body weight. And we've talked about on this show before that that slows down your metabolism generally. I mean, you start getting more than about 10% below your usual body weight and, you know, thyroid function, uh, all different kinds of things sort of uh, start to take effect. And your metabolism slows down. You go into what I've often called starvation mode. Um, and you expend fewer calories because your body's trying to put the weight back on. And certain enzymes that store fats... Uh, for example, are also very hyperactive. So as soon as you eat something, boom, it's stored. So here's the cool thing they, they did though. Um, they took the, you know, these obese subjects, they dieted them down to 10 to 15% below their usual weight. Uh, and what, what they did was they actually used different diets, uh, after they were in this vulnerable state, you know, this weight regain state. And it's just interesting what some of this says here. It says, uh, Ludwig's team, then measured how many calories these weight-reduced subjects expended daily, and that's how many that they fed them. Um, but now the subjects are rotating through three very different diets, and I'm going to focus on two of them. One month on each diet, they ate the same amount of calories on each of these diets, okay? So you can't say their caloric intake was different. It's fixed. So one diet was a typical low-fat diet, like, you know, I think a lot of dietitians uh, and Healthcare people sort of promulgated throughout the 80s, 90s, early 2000s, the typical low fat. Um, and then another diet was a very low glycemic index, lower carb kind of diet. So here's the bottom line. On the very low carb Atkins-like diet, there was virtually no metabolic adaptation to the weight loss. In other words, they did not go into starvation mode and slow down as much as if they did um, the low fat diet. Uh, it says on the very low carb diet, Dr. Lugwood subjects expended 300 more calories a day than they did on the low fat diet. So this really suggests that cutting carbs out of your diet may be more advantageous in the long run than cutting fat out of your diet. And when I see something like this, one of the things that really jumps into my mind is scientists need to seriously study strength athletes and bodybuilders mm -hmm. because of what they, I mean, what do all almost all bodybuilders do? In fact, I made a point to sort of poke around and investigate this when I was competing last time. How did you guys get ready for competition? Because everybody knows bodybuilders will go from 20% fat to about 4% fat in 16 to 20 weeks. Now, that's crazy, you know. Now, is that maintainable? Well, probably not. But they do it by removing carbs, carbs, yeah. carbs, yeah. carbs. Everybody knows that. They might pull 50 grams out every other week. You know, starting at maybe three or four hundred, and eventually by the time they're done, they're almost almost no carbs. Um, but they slowly pull carbs out of their diets. And again, I think that's what this is sort of suggesting is that uh, it might be better actually, you know, to go with uh, cutting carbs out of your diet than trying the low fat because if you go very low fat diet, your metabolism really slows down and you're kind of ruined with the starvation mode thing. Yeah. So anyway. Uh, just more stuff about this. And this is, again, just like we were talking about not new. Although this is new in that they, they got people in a vulnerable state, 
you can find research. I remember there was a paper several years ago by Krieger and colleagues, and they were actually looking at proteins, carbs, and fats. And their conclusion was the same thing, that a calorie is not a calorie is not a calorie, depending on protein, carb, or fat. And in the Krieger paper, they were actually showing that lower carb, higher protein diets, you know, calorie for calorie, are less fattening. Uh, so, you know, there you go. Carbs seem to be the problem, uh, regardless of what your healthcare practitioner is, is telling you about, you know, get on that low-fat diet. Even now, I cannot make my mom, I can't deprogram her from the low-fat thing. Really? Yeah. 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 And that's amazing to me because there's diabetes and obesity in my family. And even in a family like that, she just doesn't want to go to the bad thing. So. Okay, well, there's some news. <laughs> there let's, it is. Here you go. Let's, um, let's just take an early break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the topic of the day. And um, I just got a couple of questions prepared here. I know this is something that Phil has mentioned in uh, episodes past, and we've never really explored it. But I'd like to explore the posterior chain muscles so you know why are they the forgotten uh, muscles for example in daily life in workouts whatever so we're going to talk about something anatomical in the posterior chain and we'll be back in a minute Hi, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry, and on behalf of Phil and Rob, I'd just like to let listeners know that if you love us or you hate us, we'd like you to leave a comment or perhaps vote for us on iTunes. It helps us out quite a bit on the popularity side of things. Uh, you can also follow uh, Dr. Lowry, me, on Twitter. Uh, it's Lawnman7 on Twitter if you want to do that. We also have a Facebook page, the Iron Radio uh, listeners page. So... Uh, whether it's leaving a comment or voting for us or following us on Twitter or Facebook, uh, that would be fantastic. Also, uh, occasionally Rob or myself will write an article for another website, and Phil will as well. So lots of ways to um, interact, uh, follow us in other media, and vote for us and uh, keep things going strong on Iron Radio. Thanks. fix of iron radio in addition to being a popular institute on itunes we are also on email simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email you'll get a once per week email no more that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio so go for it welcome back to iron radio um, before we get our, to our topic of the day, which is we're going to be talking about uh, um, post-chain topic type stuff, um, we have our contest winners, and I want to bring that up so uh, people listening could, because uh, we said last week that we were going to choose these people, so I have three names here, and of course... Uh, so the- maybe, Rob, just re-explain the contest, what these guys won. Yeah, this was a competition. Uh, Lonnie has some action DVDs that he's going to send out as prizes to uh, these folks that I'm about to mention. Um, the competition was to name in the new Expendables 2 movie, um, what was it, three people who were in the movie, yep. and then uh, three twinks, right. was it? That, yeah, uh, three twinks from modern action films. <laughs> right, so l- <laughs> less than Expendables 2 worthy. Yeah. And the names that we have, drum roll, 
three names that we have. I, cho- the, I chose these. Well, most of the answers were quite fine, so we had to kind of just, uh, you know, grab these um, randomly. So the, the names that I randomly <laughs> pointed to on my screen, Joe Shillero. Joe Shillero. All right, so that's you. The number two, Michael Galusha. Go, Michael Mike. Galusha. And number three, Richard Feinberg. Richard Feinberg. So, nice. Joe Chilero, Michael Galusha, and Richard Feinberg. You are our winners. So go to our, our Iron Radio uh, home site, ironradio.org. Uh, the contact button will send the email to me. Send me your uh, full address. All your contact information, and we will send you the prizes. And I don't even know what the titles are, but uh, Lonnie has got a bunch of them, and each of you will receive some. So there you go. Yeah. Or you could just you could all contact me, and I will just give you Rob's home address. I will give it out to anybody, <laughs> and then you could just go see him. Yeah. I'm the third tent on the right. <laughs> <laughs> or I could say something like, "I live in a van down yeah. by the river." There you go. <laughs> there you go. Actually, that's funny you're saying this because one of the movies in my hands right now is about a guy who lived in a trailer down by the river. Oh, nice. <laughs> okay. Well, the topic today is posterior chain. And one of the reasons I wanted to bring this up was because it sort of is um, at risk of extinction, if you will. Um, the modern environment, I think both training environment and uh, just living environment puts the posterior chain sort of, um, well, it's out of sight often for most people, and I think that's partly why they neglect it. But let's start, I'm going to define it, and then I'm going to ask, I'll start with a question with Phil, but just to kind of define this, and you guys can uh, tweak this if you want, but essentially we're talking about muscles that run in a series up your back, the posterior part of your body. So we've got, um, you know... Your hamstrings, the uh, biceps femoris and semi-tendinosis, semi-membranosis, uh, glutes, uh, the erector, spinal erector muscles. You could even include traps and posterior delts if you wanted to in, in this. Um, so if we think about these muscles up the back, my first question is for Phil, and that is um, why is this at risk, do you think, in modern guys and gals? Well, a lot of it's due to our just everybody's daily life now. Um, most jobs are sitting on your butt at a computer answering phones or doing things like that. I mean, and that in itself doesn't lend us, you know, we, we go from school to, to work or whatever, you know, during life. Maybe you're active as a kid and then you're, you're thrown into school where you're sitting all day and then that could be your life forever from that point on after getting a job and everything else. Unless you take up sports and that did, that in itself just kills everything. Everything's, uh, anterior dominant, you know, you're sitting at a computer all the time, you're doing this and that, um, to simply the way we kind of fall, walk through what life now, um, we're getting less and less active, and then, uh, I don't know, I think in the training world, it's just this, everybody's kind of started training what, what you can see in the mirror, and, you know, they're worried about biceps and pecs and quads and Things like that. There you go. Actually, that's that was my second question, and because I think not only is this everyday life. I mean, I see I see kids walking around campus, and they've got sort of a like a lordotic posture. Their lower stomach is sticking out because their uh-huh. pelvis is 
anterior tilted, uh-huh. right? Their hip yeah. flexors are short because they sit all the time. They don't stretch it out. And, you know, like you said, everything's in the front, even in the gym. They're doing curls for the girls. Yep. They're doing T-shirt muscle workouts, you know, benches and curls. And uh, I, I just think it's it's sad because if there's an old phrase, you could tell a bodybuilder by his back. They don't say his chest. They don't say biceps. It's the back. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and if you think about power, when you look at somebody powerful, and Rob, you could chime in on this if you want, but it's not that. just huge chest like you see in a male model, you know, because those guys... You turn them around and they're twinks. Yeah. You know? Yeah. The thing I was going to say is I once heard uh, one of the uh, preeminent powerlifting gurus of the world. I re- remember him once saying that you can really not um, uh, recognize a powerful, strong man from the front, but from the back. Mm-hmm. He says, yeah. you know, a, a guy walking towards me naked or, you know, like in the, just a pair of shorts or something, you can't really tell. He says, but you turn him around, and I'm walking away, and you can see, you know, the 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 the, the back, the whole entirety of back, <laughs> like the lower body, and so forth. He says that's that's how you can tell a strong, powerful man, and I absolutely agree with that 100%. Um, you know, the front is, you know, a lot of show, not as much go, and I think the back is almost entirely go. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, so. And like Lonnie is saying, I mean, it's, uh, you know, in, in bodybuilding competition as well, that has been, you know, uh, a factor that's been bantered about for many, many years. People say, well, you know, well, what is the, you know, the Mr. Of, of all Mr. Olympia winners, you know, what is the defining characteristic or a few defining characteristics that all Olympia winners have share? And, you know, I mean, it, it, there's so many different shapes and sizes and so forth of Mr. Olympia winners from Chris Dickerson to Ronnie Coleman to Doreen Yates to, but the one thing that they all have is a lot of back thickness and density. Um, yeah, you, you know, and, and, and the, their lower body is, is, is well in proportion and thick. I mean, that really is the one, the, the things, the traits that do define, um, you know the top elite bodybuilders historically. So it is funny that that look of power. Uh, I think anybody who's intermediate or advanced in whether they're a powerlifter or a bodybuilder, even strongman, they can look at a physique and go, "That one's more powerful than that one." Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, think about the thickness even through the glutes and the hamstrings. Yeah. Um, like you look at guys that were uh, subjected to hardcore powerlifting uh, when they were competing, like bodybuilder guys like Mike Francois powerful yeah i mean yeah. i i remember sitting <laughs> i remember sitting right in the chair next to the aisle and he was the guest poser uh but he when he walked in you know he had on like the boat neck uh sweatshirt type thing you know cut out and and i just remember the expanse of how wide and also deep his back was it was it was you could almost feel a, a vibration of power in like a 10-foot radius around this guy. He was so huge from behind. And um, I don't know. It was just very, very impressive. And I just don't – I'm just not as impressed by guys with, you know, very, very large pecs or biceps, I guess, you know. Yeah. So, well, um, I, just, I just posted an impressive back on the page. That's not the cashmere. <laughs> is that is that cashmere? Yeah, on those, in his kilt. Oh my yeah, god! Just crazy. Yeah, that's that's intimidating. A, that's kind of a, like an infamous photo for uh, you know our powerlifting enthusiast listeners. Uh, 
a great many of you probably know the photo that Phil's referring to. It's the Bill Kazmaier, yeah, wearing a kilt with his shirtless from behind. It's, uh, I'm sure I've got that saved somewhere in my powerlifting files. That's a very inspiring shot. He's just lean enough. I mean, he's got a lot of muscularity going on back there. You know yeah, what I yeah. mean? But even guys who aren't as muscular, uh, or their skin's not quite as thin as that picture, when you see their, you know, yeah, their you lower back coming up the, the medial, the central part of their back and up through their traps, you know, they've got these like silver back like traps, yeah. you know, uh, so much power going on there. It's just not even funny. And, and with the big, you know, uh, squatter's butt, uh, and that kind of stuff. Just, you know, lots of power. Loads of power. Yeah, you uh, know, we're talking obviously about the, the aesthetic and the, you know, the, and, and by virtue of that, you know, as it moves to a performance base, you know, just the importance of the posterior chain. But, you know, um, it really needs to be said that anybody who does desire to have any sort of <laughs> longevity and or success, uh, lifting heavy things needs to understand just the injury preventative aspect of all that back there. Uh, yeah, uh, well, of muscular balance, if nothing else. I mean, think how imbalanced most guys, just look at their quads, hamstrings. You know, they've got these huge, powerful quads and their hamstrings just, they, they can't, um, hold their own. Yeah. You know, in comparison. Well, like, it's just like the whole concept of like, you know, all these, like you're saying, the guys who, you know, the guys who, you know, we all got all the chest biceps guys, you know, but, uh, you know, going a little bit further, the guys who might be a little, a few degrees more even hardcore than that, they recognize that a nice wide back is good, but, you know, they, they lack the depth or they lack the lower body, the back and the rectors and all this stuff. And, you know, you see these guys doing all the machine rows and all the pull downs and the lats and all this stuff, but, you know, they, it just blows my mind that so many people fail to understand just the basic nature of grabbing something and picking it off the floor. Right. You know, I well, mean, let's, in fact, let, well, let's run with that then. What are your, some of your favorite posterior chain movements? So obviously Fortress isn't spending all day on back work with pull downs. So not that you know, they're bad, I mean, but you know. Certainly you I, like? I agree that, you know, lat pull downs are very, I think, important for a lot of like, you know, again, injury prevention and so forth for a lot of bench presses actually and, and, and aiding in bench press. But I once wrote an article, uh, several years ago and I, I was writing about, you know, hitting the back, you know, for maximal development and overall strength, you know, you have to hit it from, I can't remember how, I guess, uh, one, two, three, like four angles, basically. And the angles would be, you know, shrugging your shoulders straight up in like a trap shrug. You know, any sort of row movement where you're pulling something into you, um, you know, something pulling down, you know, the opposite of like a shoulder press coming down from that, that angle. And then of course, that's just bending over from the waist and picking something off the floor. <clears throat> and, and certainly, you know, to, to achieve, you know, I, I would, the, the best exercises in my opinion, and of course, people are going to argue what they they find to be most productive for themselves, and that's completely valid because everybody has different biomechanics and so forth. But I mean, generally speaking, I don't think anybody is going to argue that something, you know, some sort of deadlift, whether whatever variation that might be, a conventional deadlift or a stiff leg deadlift, right, achieves the one, some sort of row. And again, if you want to go the hardcore route, you're looking at like a dumbbell type one arm dumbbell row, or certainly like a you know the granddaddy of bent barbell row. Um, and of course you can do, you know, T-bar rows and, you know, uh, 
long pulley rows and all that type of thing. So what do and, you like the most? Do you have a favorite that's something that you really like? I mean, you can even think about, like, good mornings, uh, you know, like reverse hypers. I mean, there's so many things you can do yeah. with the backside. Well, I think, you know, it's interesting because, you know, is being a powerlifter, of course, I, I put such an emphasis on, on deadlifts, but I think probably most bodybuilders will probably get the best bang for their buck by doing more of a good morning type hybrid deadlift. Um, so not a strict good morning, uh, not good morning, sorry, stiff legged deadlift. My apologies. Oh, gotcha. Um, right. Yeah, I, I'm sorry. Yeah, that was uh, my mistake there, folks. Um, so not a strict, strict stiff leg deadlift, but almost like a hybrid conventional deadlift where it's kind of like more like, you know, half conventional, half stiff leg. Mm-hmm. Um, for maximal development, but outside of that, bent barbell rows. I mean, I've been doing those for as long as I've been going to gyms, and I uh, I swear by that for a number of reasons, I, oh, and yeah. not the least of which is just like shoulder health. I think I think Phil, you can uh, pipe in here and probably s- s- tell me that I'm right on this because most strength athletes bent barbell rows are almost like medicine for the shoulder health. Yeah. Um, I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard about a powerlifter support that had, you know, a, a shoulder. And again, I'm not talking with like some sort of catastrophic shoulder problem, but I'm talking like just, you know, a nagging problem that wasn't at least alleviated to some degree by increasing the frequency or the, the volume or the weight, uh, you know, of, uh, or, you know, their, their, their performance with a bent barbell row. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think I, any kind of rowing. I don't think enough sure, people are abs- doing just enough rowing. Right. Um, absolutely. But yeah, rowing for sure. Any type of rowing if you're a strength athlete is is gold. That's actually one of my favorites too. Is just a, a standing barbell row. And I don't use tons of weight. We, we were talking about that before that you know, 2 and a quarter, 275, that's that's a lot of weight. Uh if you want to feel your back, you know, if you don't want to just bounce around like a fool or something or like instead of Unless you're doing something like you said, Rob, like a almost a hybrid deadlift, uh, stiff leg deadlift combo, right. right? Right. So, but just standing there with a barbell, you know, because if you think about the posterior your muscles and how they have to activate from the floor all the way up to your neck, you know what I mean? Yeah. You're you're just stabilizing yourself. I mean, I like T-bar rows too, but they remove some of that. Yeah. You know that you're just literally supporting. I've been doing a lot of ring rows lately, where I'm just. I'm, I got a set of rings hanging in the garage, and I go hang from them, and my feet are on the ground, and I row from them. <clears throat> and I, I like those a lot. Um, it, I was actually just going to say, you know, like maybe the, the recent trends for each of us to, for, for doing, you know, back, you know, what it would be. I mean, certainly for me lately, um, always start off with deadlift, unless it's a deload week on deadlift, in which case I still start off with heavy bent rows. But okay. if it's just a normal um, progression type session, I start with deads. Uh, then I would go um, and do actually right after that I do my acceleration speed bench work, <laughs> just to get it, just to get off, you know, give my back a break for ten minutes. Um, and then I go do bent rows, and then I would probably do a you know some sort of variant of pull down, whether it be you know a normal grip or an underhand grip or a neutral grip. Um, that's pretty much it. I don't even really bother too much with the shrugging anymore just because I'm deadlifting so much. You know, that's funny you're saying that. I, I don't do a ton of shrugging anymore either. I think partly because I've sort of taken a fancy to uh, rack pulls, you know, okay. like, yeah. right about knee length or something. You know, I don't want to I, I don't want to pull real. My, my goal is not to be a power lifter, right? I want to engage my back more or less the whole time. Yeah. So rack pull, I love them. And they sort of fit that bill because, you know, they're yeah. the... They're the shrug type movement, but it's also a little bit of that 
well, obviously, row kind of movement. And like you were saying, it's almost halfway between the, the pull straight down angle that you were discussing and then the pull into you horizontal. Yeah. It's a little bit of both. But what I really love about that is the tension that it draws across my traps. Not just the superior aspect of my traps, but like down the rhomboids in the center of my traps. And I honestly think that that made my back a lot thicker the last time I competed. I had you know, a lot I, more meat going on up there. Yeah, you know, you bring up a good point about the rack pulls, and uh, I'd like to hear Phil's opinion on this. Um, I do agree with that. I, I do agree that if you're if you're mostly concerned with just maximal muscle, muscular development, you can pretty much achieve the same results by doing rack pulls from as opposed to right from the floor. Um, because I find, and of course this is going to be, you know, hugely dependent on what your, you know, leverages are and so forth and what your body's like if you're a super long-armed guy or a long torso short-armed guy or, I mean, so you guys take those things into account. Mm-hmm. But, you know, generally speaking, pulling from a rack, you know, having, having the rails set so the bar kind of sits maybe, you know, a few inches below your knee or thereabouts, I think from a muscular standpoint, um, development standpoint, it probably achieve both the same goals. And you know, in a lot of ways, probably will um, again lessen the likelihood of either a overtraining the lift or b injuring yourself. Because I tend to find, not only for myself but other guys that I've seen, it's that bottom two, three, four inches that's the that that kind of puts you in that kind of hyper kind of um, flex state. Yeah. You know, well, and where, I'll tell you what else, Rob. I mean, it, it, and. A lot of bodybuilders, I for years didn't do regular deadlifts at all, and I'm still not very strong in the deadlift. Um, but because I didn't know where to put it in my body part split, you know, I mean, so a lot of bodybuilders, of course, they're doing like maybe a push pull routine or whatever it is. And I really had a hell of a time putting deadlifts just on back day because then my, sometimes my legs would get sore and it would interfere with my squat session, you know, my leg yeah. work on the next yeah. day. Something well, that like is, that. and that's it, what that, rack pulls really help prevent that because it keeps it pretty much back the whole time. Absolutely, absolutely, you, know? you can really focus in on getting into a perfect. And again, there's there are people out there, like I say, who are just biomechanically perfectly suited, and they can get into down into a conventional deadlift kind of you know um, you know start position and just look perfect and be perfect. Um, but you know, for for most people. Um, you know, when, again, when you have that bar set at a, at a height that puts it, you know, like a couple inches below your knee or thereabouts, you can really hyper zone in on just being absolutely muscularly perfect into the movement, um, you know, and certainly maintain that over, you know, many reps. You know, I think you've hit it right. That's what I really like about <coughs> it. Yeah. Like mind in the muscle, right. I can feel that tension across my upper back because I can use loads that are pretty crazy. You right. Know, well, yeah, and you can also. I think you can set your back harder. It's a lot easier to get get your back set. And I think you're right, Rob. You you can't overtrain the move as easy. No. And that's why for a lot of years I was doing three weeks from the rack, one week from the floor. Yeah, I remember. And I could go heavy all the time. Yeah. Um, and it's just that much of this. It's that little difference it makes it huge. I think it I think, does. Because I'll tell you, when it, the fastest way I can overtrain deadlifts is to, is to. Um, is to be pulling heavy, 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 heavy from the floor week yeah. in, week out. Yeah. But yeah, like you say, I mean, all my years as a bodybuilder, I did do rack pulls. And I'll tell you, I never experienced that type of overtraining in that way. So, and I, again, I don't know entirely what it is. And That's like, interesting, and yeah. Maybe it's only, like I said, maybe it's only specific me, people, me included. But, you know, that last 
two or three inches. Like even if I have the bar, you know, up on a forty-five pound plate or two forty-five pound like kind of a thing, makes a world of difference to me as far yeah. as not necessarily the poundage I can lift, but how my body responds to it. Yeah. You guys after. have both mentioned how brutal the recovery is from straight up heavy from the floor deadlifts. Yes. Yeah. Yes. You know. Well, and I that think removes that, huh? Yeah. Yeah, it does a lot of it. I think I think people don't give. Like, if I had to choose one posterior chain move, of course it'd be the deadlift. Yeah. And I think people don't give it enough credit on just what all it works. Um, strain a lat sometime and go deadlift. You know, you don't think about <laughs> okay. your lats when you're deadlifting, right. but go strain one and try and deadlift. And, oh, my God, there's a lot of lat involved. I mean, you're working everything from the bottom of your freaking ankles up. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, I can tell you, yeah, I don't it's... usually get sore lats. I don't really get sore muscles really anymore. But I mean, it does happen. And and it no, did, neither do I. I'm was, more I went up to six hundred pounds on deadlifts on just just this past Saturday, and I didn't do anything poundage or or, or otherwise volume wise out of the ordinary for the rest of my accessory back work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll tell you, it, I mean, my lats were. I won't say they're really really sore, but I felt my lats the next day. Yeah, and that and like I say, it, that certainly wasn't from the accessory work because I always do basically the same type of thing with that. So it must have been the six hundred pounds on the bar. So yeah. what you're saying, Phil, I totally buy into too. It's, it's funny, it, Rob. I can hear the bodybuilder in you because <laughs> you're talking about you know feeling you know these muscles and this and that. And sometimes I think people who are pure performance from square one, they you know they their nervous system might be burnt or this or that, but I don't know. It's almost like you're looking for a little bit of muscular soreness in certain muscles or something. Well, I, could, I could be wrong, but... No, you know. no, I, I, it, it's something that for the first, when I made the switch to powerlifting, and, and so, I mean, I've been training, and I, you guys are probably about the same, certainly you, Lonnie, because you've, you've been training longer than I have even, so... I don't really get sore anymore, you know? And I'm not going to lie, I don't know if it, what this says about me, if I'm a masochist or whatever, but, you know, it, it, maybe it's just because from such a young age, you know, you, you get to use, to, to a, a, a certain degree, you know, use soreness, muscular soreness as a barometer for, okay, well, right. I probably kick my ass there. Right or and wrong, I, I've done that, too. In fact, there's, I've actually done some studies where a lot of the, like, muscle damage markers and stuff, they don't correlate very well necessarily on the timeline with soreness. But I'm like you. I, it's a... It's a reward in a way. It might be masochistic, but it suggests uh, improvement. You know? Right. Yeah. So, and and it's taken me several years now, and I'm pretty much over it now. I don't really care anymore, and which is good because, like I say, I I'm like a big piece of dense hardened meat. I, I just don't really get sore much really anymore. You know, I I think back to you know when I was. You know, 19, 20 years old. Oh my God. I mean, every time I came out of the gym the next day, I was just, whatever body parts they were, it was just like, you know, they were just smoking. That's funny you say that, Rob, because I still do get sore, but I okay. purposely will do finishing movements that are negatives or very muscle specific, you know, focusing on the, the negative part purposely just to get sore. I mean, you yeah, know. Yeah, but I still do that and too in all my accessory work. You know, I still do that too, and I do, and lately I've been doing a ton of volume for like bench pressing, like after my main stuff, I do a lot of, you know, sets at you know, ten at fifty percent, and that on all sorts of you know, uh, you know, reverse grip presses, close grip presses, inclined dumbbell presses, and I still don't get sore. Wow! You know, it's like Thank I don't get, get get an inch of soreness, and I just I don't know what that says, but but you know, I mean, as, as, as far as I'm concerned, you know, as, as long as the 
the weight on the bar and the you know the weight on scale is still reflecting what I want it to, then you know. I, I really think there's a big genetic thing there because uh, there's something called idiopathic hyperCKemia, which is people dumping lots of muscle damage markers more than others. And I think it's sort of along the same lines. I think some people are going to get sore all the time, and I'm probably one of those guys actually. Whereas you're one of the guys where the armor plating effect. That, that Priscilla Clarkson used to talk about with repeat weight training sessions. I think you probably just get very armor plated, you know, after yeah. session after session. Yeah, well, certainly I, I can tell you this. If I do want to be sore, and this is kind of strange because, you know, you can train for, like I say, 20 plus years, you know, but you take a week or two off <laughs> and you go in that first oh, session. Yeah. And yeah. it doesn't matter what you do, you get sore. Yeah. You know, and it, hey, that, that always stuns me too. I think, geez, you know, I. You know, you're, you're so well conditioned, but then you miss like, you know, one or two sessions and you come back and, you know, you get, you know. I know, I've known bodybuilders who would do that on purpose. They're like, I'm not getting sore anymore. I'm going to take a week off and come back and, you know, because to them that that's reigniting their progress. I'm not sure if, if that's true, but uh, anyway. Right. Yeah. No, but, um, but like what Phil says is, is to get just get back to what he was saying because I think it's a very very important point. Yeah, deadlifts in you know, all the, the variations of the deadlift, whether it be a stiff legged or a rack pull or a sumo or conventional or however you want to do it, people underestimate just how um, productive of a mo- that movement is for just overall back development as well. People I think tend to focus only on it being well, yeah, you know, it develops your lower back, but. You know, whatever. That's not very showy. It was a good point about if you're like if you've got an injured lat or something, because what that that clearly shows you the the sequence in the chain, you know, of activation. Because you'll do part of the movement, and you'll get to the part where the lats have to fire. And you're like, Joe. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. It's, but but it's point. like it's like um I, I I'm trying to think who 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 said it once. Maybe it was a I'm trying to think what bodybuilder said it once. But somebody was talking about oh it was uh Henderson Thorne who was a who was a now kind of a Kind of, kind of semi-retired pro bodybuilder. Very strong dude, kind of, that, right? Very strong bodybuilder. Well, in fact, it, pound for pound, in my opinion, one of the strongest of all time. And I've seen him do these things with my bare eyes here in, in Toronto. So um, he once said to me, I was once at, talking to him many, many, many years ago. I said, I said, you know, uh, how long does it take you to recuperate from an 800-pound squat? And he said, well, you don't really ever recuperate from an 800-pound squat. <laughs> and so we got more into talking about that because I thought that was a kind of an interesting comment. Um, and, and I said to him, you know, about, and he was just saying, when you, when you move such a weight, you know, there really is, it's impossible that you're not going to be really engaging a ton of musculature, not only the prime mover, but just maximally all the supporting muscular too and and so yeah i mean if you're just dicking around with like you know a plate on the deadlift or something like that yeah but i mean like i was saying about you know me with the 600 pounds on saturday or whatever it's when you start getting up there you know five six seven eight hundred pound deadlifts man i i don't care really who you are i think that's that kind of sheer magnitude of weight is going to just really really have an overall Muscle billion. Well, because you're, you know, you're, you're engaging these massive muscles. You know, lats, biggest muscle on the upper body. You know, glutes, biggest muscles on the lower body. I mean, you know, hyper, not hyper, but just hip extension is sort of a common factor through all this stuff. And I mean, I was even going to point out just, even just a squat. You're mentioning squats with uh, Henderson and whatnot. I mean, done off the heels and not like you know a front squat or a olympic style squat as you sometimes call it that's a 
fantastic. That's one of my favorite posterior chain movements. In yeah. fact, I was just I was just doing them today. Just you know, just driving off the heels, and I can guarantee yeah. my butt and my hamstrings are going to be ruined yeah. tomorrow. Yeah. Well, well no, and that's what I'll say. I mean, I think that that's where the deadlift messes up. I think a, a squat's going to hit your butt a lot more than a deadlift will. Mm-hmm. Personally, a oh. deadlift's going to kill your hamstrings and your back. I mean, sure, your butt's involved, but not like in a squat. Yeah, no, I agree. Well, I mean, when you see women who actually know how to train with weight train, um, you know, not the ones who just go in there and, like, you know, lift the little five-pound pink, pink doubles, but they actually the women that are, you know, really hardcore into it, but who are also mindful of doing it because, of, you know, for aesthetic reasons, and there's nothing wrong with that, you know, and I've seen women like this, you know, and you, you can see them, you know, having had trained long enough to know how to make variations in their squatting form or something specifically if they're trying to hit their butt more. You know, I mean, even if like you're doing a leg press, you know, some leg presses are built with, you know, huge, um, you know, foot placement um, plates, you know, which can make it really good for that. If you're, you know, trying to, you know, like Lonnie's saying, you know, uh, if, as far as stance and where you're placing your your heels and, you know, how you're bringing the weight down on your heels, um, that can be, you know, massively, it can ma- massively, massively shift the, you know, the majority of the stress onto different parts of the leg right. or the butt or the hamstrings for sure. Well, if you if you look from the side, uh, squat versus a deadlift, the squat's going to start in a in a your hip flexion is going to be largely involving your thighs, right? So your 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 hips are very flexed because of your of your femur coming up, you know, because you're it's sitting in the hole before you drive up. Whereas right. in a deadlift, a lot of the flexion is spinal flexion, bending forward. Okay. You know what yeah. I mean? And there's not as much extreme flexion in the in the other part of the pelvis where they, it meets your you know your thigh bones. There. Right. Yeah. Right. You know, and and hence the the lack relative lack of glute involvement. I think. But, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, I think that uh, that's all that I really had out of this. I think if people want to if they want to um, <laughs> do their posterior chain a favor. Do some things like don't sit in place for more than about 20, 30 minutes at a time if you can humanly help it because uh, you're going to start to get some of that anterior pelvic tilt and hip flexor shortening. You know, don't be a, a T-shirt muscle only kind of dude because that's going to that's just going to lead to the the look of a twink, you know, like a, <laughs> like a male model, you know. Right. Yes, you know, guns and pecs, okay, but, yeah. you know, that's not power. Um, and I, again, I just, you're right, Rob. You pointed out that I, I keep talking about power as a look, and I, Phil talks about power literally as power as moving, yeah. moving weight quickly, you know, yeah. and a lot of it to, from the floor kind of thing. So, yeah. Um, just before we go, I'll just say those names again. Um, and again, congratulations to the following: Joe Shalero, mm-hmm. Michael Galusha, and Richard Feinberg. <laughs> Those three gentlemen, please uh, contact us via the ironrail.org website, our contact button. Send me your contact information. I will forward that on to our, our own Lonnie Lowry here, and he will send you your prizes. So congratulations. Send you, send you Huge action heroes. Woo-hoo. <laughs> All right, you guys. All right, till next week. Uh, have a good week, guys, and uh, train well. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org store. 
Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. Hey, IronRadio.org listeners, this is Lonnie Lowry, and I'm just bringing you a sneak peek only for Iron Radio listeners at this point. If you Google CRC Press, Lowry, L-O-W-E-R-Y, and Protein, you can be some of the first people on the planet to see this book. It's specifically for strength athletes, everything on the safety of high-protein diets, the efficacy, the dosing, the types practical applications and case studies. This is a textbook. It's not what I would call an industry book. This is not pseudoscience. This is the state of the art science. And if someone wants to critique you on your extra protein intake, this will be something you can hold up and say, this is what the literature says about stressed kidneys or bone loss or gout or dehydration or increased muscle mass over time or leanness or what types are best. This is the ultimate source in one place. Little disclosure here. I do make a single digit percentage of royalties on this book. It's such a low amount, however. Obviously, I haven't done it for that purpose. I did it because, like you, I want to have something I can hold up in one place that's modern literature instead of what a, perhaps a health educator might tell you about the benefits and the potential concerns, if there are any, on ample protein diets specific to a population like ours. Thank you. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.